Okay, thank you all for coming, and sorry for the lack of information. I think some of you showed up at 6. Uh, that might have been a mistake in the advertisement. We are starting now at 6.30, and we'll continue through 8 o'clock. Um, this is the, the lecture on the new population bomb, the politics of population change. I'm Elliot Green from the Department of International Development here at the LSC. I'll be chairing it. Uh, we'll have three speakers. Um, this is an occasion, um, the title of this talk comes from our first speaker's article in Foreign Affairs from 2010, but this is really not only a chance to discuss the topic of, of uh, that article, but also the book, which has just come out. This is, in a sense, uh, a book launch. We have several copies here. The title of the book is Political Demography, uh, subtitled How Population Changes Are Reshaping International Security and National Politics. We have copies here on sale for 20 pounds, which you can buy afterwards. Um, as I said, we'll have three speakers. Our first speaker uh, will be Jack Goldstone. Uh, Jack Goldstone is the Virginia E. and John Hazel Professor at the George Mason School of Public Policy and an eminent scholar. Uh, his work on issues such as social movements, revolutions, and international politics have won him global acclaim, and research grants from the MacArthur Foundation, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and the American Council of Learned Societies. Uh, he is an author or co-author of nine books and is a leading authority on regional conflicts and has served on a U.S. Vice Presidential Task Force on State Failure and a consultant to the U.S. State Department, Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, Jack will be followed uh, by Eric Kaufman. Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University, University of London, uh, was formerly a fellow at, fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard University, um, frequent contributor to Prospect and other publications, and is the author most recently of Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Religion, Demography, and Politics in the 21st Century, published in 2010, as well as uh, the book The Orange Order, published in 2007, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America in 2004, and Rethinking Ethnicity, Majority Groups, and Dominant Minorities in 2004. Um, lastly, we'll have John Parker, who, uh, who writes about uh, globalization without economic policy. He's previously been the bureau chief in Washington, Moscow, and Brussels for The Economist, uh, assistant editor and business editor, European editor and the books and arts editor for The Economist, and features editor for The Financial Times. Uh, each speaker will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then we'll open up the floor for questions and answers for the rest of the period. Um, and so, without further ado, over to you, Jack. Thank you very much. I want to thank all of you for coming today. It's my job to tell you why you should care about political demography. Now, I could put a lot of numbers up here and try and frighten you with columns and figures, but the real point, I think, of understanding political demography is not just the numbers. I'll throw some of them out there to lighten things up. But understanding the relationships. I'm going to try and persuade you that the relationships among different age groups different ethnic groups, different religious groups, population growing at different rates in different parts of the world, creates a set of interlocking relationships that are going to be the dominant feature shaping the world of the 21st century. Now, Eric, my co-author, is an expert on religious and ethnic issues, so I'm going to let him focus on those for you. Uh, Elliot's contribution to the book is on ethnic conflicts in Africa. Now, we even have a chapter in the book by a US demographer, William Fry, on how the uh, changing level of immigration of minorities into certain key swing states affected the election of President Obama and will have an impact on the coming election this fall. So lots of interesting tidbits in there. But I'm going to focus on 
a few major axes, kind of US, China, and Europe, Africa, because those I think are going to be the pivotal relationships for the future. Um, what is political demography? Well, the big discussion of demography in the 60s and 70s was all about how we were going to run out of resources. Uh, that was Paul Ehrlich's uh, fear. And he might have been right, if not for the Green Revolution and the dramatic fall in fertility that's occurred all across the world. Uh, many of you have probably heard we're in a baby dearth, not just in Europe, but fertility rates have fallen very rapidly in places like India, Iran, Indonesia, Brazil. Uh, all of these places actually are heading toward the low replacement fertility. The United Nations Population Division, which is the most accurate source for global projections, suggests that population growth is slowing down worldwide. We're at about seven, we just hit seven billion last year on Halloween, they think, somewhere around there. Um, and we may hit nine billion uh, by mid-century and then perhaps 10 billion by 2100. But that's a real slowdown. It suggests that we went from six to seven billion in about 10 years. It's gonna take 20 years to go from seven to nine billion and then maybe 50 years for that last billion and then it slows down. And personally, I'm not terribly worried about um, people running out of food. I think globally, if we were all to simply become vegans, we could easily produce enough food for 10 billion people. There's plenty of uh, unirrigated arable land in the world that could be more intensively farmed. Uh, the big problem we're running into, the reason we're having food spikes, food price spikes now, is we're getting a collision of two big forces. One is we're getting global climate change, whether you think it's due to uh, fossil fuel burning or whether it's cyclical, I'm going to put aside for a minute, that's a separate debate. But the climate is definitely becoming more irregular. We're having more droughts, more floods. Ask the 20 million people who were displaced in flooding in Pakistan last year. And we're having more people who live in zones that are afflicted by those rising drought and flood frequencies. And they're affecting crop plantings. Just this last week, Brazil announced that because of droughts in its soybean zone, they're going to have a major shortfall in their soybean exports, and that's already sending the price of soybeans uh, soaring in China. So what we've got is we've got climate shocks, and at the same time, probably the biggest single change to the global population that lies ahead is somewhere between two and three billion people moving into middle-class consumption patterns over the next 30 years. Now, like I said, the population of the world is moving from 7 billion, 8, 9 billion. That's a 30% increase. I think that's manageable. The tricky thing is we've now got about a billion high-income consumers in Western Europe, <coughs> North America, and Japan and East Asia. That may triple or more to over 3 billion middle-class consumers, counting those in China, India, Brazil, Mexico, parts of the Middle East, other parts of South Asia. And by middle income, I don't mean like people in this room, but I do mean people who want more meat in their diet, who are going to be living in cities where they're going to want heating and air conditioning much of the year. And so they're going to be adding to the global demand for high intensity food production, farmed protein, and energy production. And that's the worry. That's the real worry. Can we accommodate a global middle class that is three times or four times as large as the global middle class today? 
Now, frankly, I wouldn't worry that much either if we look at the world population distribution as a whole. So, if you say, how many young people are there in the world? How many teenagers? How many adults? How many old folks? The global age distribution today looks a lot like the age distribution in the United States around 1970, after the baby boom. And the United States did fine for the next 30, 40 years with that age distribution. In fact, globally, they're about, you know, children age 0 to 14 are the largest group. Young adults are somewhat smaller. And globally, the number of people over 50 is still just a small fraction of the global population. So that's the kind of age structure we're all used to living with, right? Uh, if you, a lot of you here are too young to remember the baby boom, but that was a time when there were kids everywhere. And nowadays, if you go anywhere in Africa or Asia, you go to society and you see lots of kids everywhere, and that's where the youth are. In fact, here's a number to remember and take home from this. 90% of the children under 15 in the world today are growing up in what we call developing countries. That is outside of North America, outside of Japan, Korea, outside of Europe. So Africa, Latin America, Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, 90% of the kids in the world are growing up in those countries today. That suggests the problem we have are these things called national boundaries. And that's the trick. If you look, unfortunately, at countries not as the world as a whole, but divided up into nations, you see a lot of the nations are aging at truly astounding rates. That is, certain countries, particularly the richest countries in Europe and East Asia, have decided that kids are an expensive luxury and we don't want to bother. We'd rather have a second car or a second house than a second child. So fertility rates in Germany, Italy, Spain, Greece, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, are well below replacement. Not just a little below, well below replacement. That is, for each mom, there's only about somewhere between six-tenths and eight-tenths of a child in the population on average. So these countries are not reproducing themselves. Uh, is that a worry? Think of it this way. Here's the key idea of political demography. Don't think of population just as here's a certain number of people and here are the resources or raw materials they use. That's the kind of old static economic thinking. Political demography says think of people in a society and think of a society as a dynamic system that has to reproduce itself over time. To reproduce itself over time, a society has to move people through childhood into an adolescence where they're equipped to succeed as adults into appropriate jobs where they earn money, pay taxes, and then into a retirement with some type of balance of dignity, productivity, and health. And that whole system, that whole life course progression, has to be carried out in a world where nations or societies are competing with other nations for resources, and where the balance between the younger and the older generations is liable to be disrupted by a big change in the pattern of social reproduction. Now that's where we are now. People talk about, hey, we're in a recession, we need austerity to get out of it. Whatever you think for the next two or three years, what bothers me is that we're in a double whammy. On the one hand, yes, we're in a cyclical recession, we had a financial crisis, and now we have a lot of debts, and that's bad news. We've got to deal with that. 
But we can't simply go back and say, okay, once we're out of the cyclical crisis, let's go back to the way things were in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. The reason we can't go back to that is we are demographically entering a completely different world. Thanks to the growth of the baby boomers, the labor force in European countries was growing at a good steady clip of 1% a year all the way from 1950 to 2005. We're in a growth mode and we're enjoying all the fruits of the high productivity of those well-educated baby boomers who entered the labor force. Yeah, they ran up a lot of debts, that's going to be a headache for you young people. But the bigger headache is that those baby boomers are actually going to retire. And you might say, oh good, we're going to get jobs when they step aside and retire. Well. <coughs> Maybe yes, maybe no, because again, there's that fit problem. Have you got the right skills as young people, and is the economy furnishing you the opportunities to match your skills and get jobs? Right now, young people in France, I'm sorry, young people in Spain and Italy are not finding jobs. They're going to Germany to get those jobs. Some of you may end up going to places like Nigeria or China to get jobs in the future, because that's where your skills may be in the greatest demand. But the dynamic in most European countries is they're facing not just <coughs> austerity, but a major adjustment. And by that I mean most of the social institutions that were set up to move people through the life course and handle work, retirement, government, those institutions were set up during a time when population was growing, workforce was growing, young people were being born, new households were being formed, and that was the motor of growth. The model of economic growth was raw materials and low-cost manufactured goods for the developing world would come to the rich countries who had their own motor of internal growth through population increase and household formation. That's all going away. The number of new households being formed is going down. Uh, Turkey today has 18 million students in school, K through 12, and higher education. That is more than the number of K through 12 and university students in all of Western Europe. Turkey has a relatively young population, almost 100 million people altogether, but most of them are still under 40. Europe is heading toward a situation where about one-third of all adults will be over 60 in the next 30 years. In some countries, like Germany and Japan, it may be half of all adults. And this is not just a strange one-off thing. If you say we're moving toward population stability, think about what that means. Population stability means the same number of children are born in every age group. So the number of people aged 20 to 30 is going to be the same as those aged 30 to 40 and 40 to 50, because that's what a straight population pyramid will look like if every pair of parents has roughly two kids. Fortunately, and this is wonderful, old people are not dying at nearly the rate they used to. Life expectancy is continuing to grow. And indeed, life expectancy has been steadily growing by a year, a decade, since the beginning of the last century, and will probably continue all the way up to people at the end of the century enjoying a life expectancy between 90 and 100. We may be able to print replacement organs, use stem cells to replace deteriorating body parts. Uh, Alzheimer's is the big obstacle, but if you keep thinking and working through your life, maybe we'll beat that too. <laughs> but there's, there's very little doubt that people will still be alive and kicking into their 80s and 90s. But since reproduction rates have gone to stability or less, 
the number of people, say, aged 20 to 60, that 40-year group, is not going to be much larger than the people who are still around age 60 to 100. So there's going to be almost a kind of one-to-one -one, uh, people who what we consider working age and people who we consider looking forward, at least, to spending most of their time in retirement. That's going to have to change. There's no way we can keep those promises. Especially scary, think about this. We're facing a long-term slowdown in the growth rates of rich countries. European countries, North American countries, a good year was three to three and a half percent economic growth. Of that, about two percent was productivity growth and one percent was growth in the labor force. Now you're going to lose that one percent growth in the labor force and go to negative one quarter percent. So that's already going to take you down even on a good day, assuming productivity is unchanged, you're going to drop to less than 2% annual growth, even in a reasonably solid recovery if we go back to the way things were. But it's going to be hard to get that 2% productivity if you also have fewer young people who are the main innovators and who are the main adopters, the early adopters of innovations. If you have less investment in education, in capital for young people, it's also hard to keep that productivity going. Because even though it's expensive, I don't know, how many of you have kids? Not enough, right? <laughs> anyway, but if you have kids, you know, they're expensive. But if you invest in education, clothing, and health care for a youngster, when they grow up and they go to work, society gets that back, right? People go to work, hopefully, for 40, 50, 60 years, and you get back what you put into those children while they were 0 to 15. Now, think of someone who retires at 65 or even 70 and lives for another 20, 25 years. Whatever they consume, whatever society invests in their health care, their leisure, their entertainment, their clothing, gets buried when they die. There's little or no long-term social return on that spending. And so that's going to be a drain on the resources for growth in those societies. Now, you add that to the fact that almost all of the pension plans local and state, are assuming 6 to 8% returns in order to pay their obligations. And we really have a clash with reality here. And we hope we can avoid a kind of generational conflict with young people saying, don't tax me to pay for the retirement and health care of older people. They should have saved for that. It's their responsibility. Or you have people of my generation saying, we passed the laws, we set things up, we counted on this. It's got to be there for us. The only way out of this is tighter integration of the rich country economies with the developing economies where the greatest potential for growth lies. That's where all the kids are. 90% of the future labor force of the world is also growing up in the developing countries. Now that could be a great potential resource because just like Europeans and Americans in the 1950s, there's a younger generation that's eager for education, has enormous potential to have their human capital raised, and wants to work. The difficulty is, especially in Africa, they're in what I call a race between governance and population growth. The quality of governance is the main obstacle to young people in South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Central America, realizing their potential as workers the quality of the education they get, the degree to which there is security of property and person to encourage them to invest, the degree to which 
they can start businesses and profit is all much less without the rule of law and without governments that are supportive and that can provide the infrastructure and the opportunities they need. I tell my friend on the Gates Foundation, I think it's fabulous that you're saving lives with efforts to reduce malaria and reduce HIV. But think a minute what happens to those young people whose lives you saved. What happens to them if you don't also invest in providing health care, education, sanitation, infrastructure, energy, capital for increasing their productivity? It doesn't do any good for them or the world to simply have more people survive if they can't look forward to a more productive future existence. So we've got to think systemically. Now, growth in Africa is scary. And I say this because the numbers are not what we expected they would be. We had hoped that population growth would continue to decline in Africa, as it did for the last 20, 30 years. For most African countries, fertility rates have come down so that women, instead of having five or six children, are having three, th between three and four. That's a big drop. But that now seems to have stalled. And what's more, the interventions we've made in child health have meant that more children are surviving. So what we've actually seen in countries like Nigeria, Malawi, Tanzania, is an increase in the rate of population growth in just the last decade, as we've seen the increases in infant survival start to outweigh the slower decline in fertility. So for example, uh, in Nigeria, the number of surviving uh, youngsters per adult um, has gone up about 3% within the last 10 years. So we were in a situation where each woman had a little under uh, two surviving daughters, and now it's a little bit over two surviving daughters. It's gone from about 191 to 2.05. In Tanzania, it's gone from about 2.0 to 2 and a quarter, a more than 10% increase. So these countries are actually ramping up. And the prediction in the United Nations Population Division's projection are amazing. They predict the population of Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole will reach over 3 billion from 1 billion today by the end of the century. Now, that's just a number. But to put it in perspective, in 1950, when the population of Europe was about 500 million, um, the population of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, was a little under 500 million. Uh, Europe's population was quite a bit larger than that of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Europe is now moving up towards 700 million, but Sub-Saharan Africa has raced past it and is already close to a billion. Now, Europe's population is not going to grow at all in the next century. It may decline by 10-15%, but Sub-Saharan Africa's population could double or triple. The forecast for particular countries will startle. Uh, the forecast is that Nigeria uh, will reach over 300 million by mid-century, and if things do not change, and they'll have to change, but the projection is if things don't change, Nigeria is on target to reach 700 million by 2100. Uh, that's a crazy number. I know it's a crazy number. It's not going to happen. But you do wonder what's going to happen to the people in Nigeria, because Nigeria is already coming apart at the seams. 
Nigeria is in a kind of demographic tug of war between the Muslim population in the north, which is growing faster and which is resentful and wants control of resources and control of the government, and the Christian animist population in the south. Um, all across Africa, we find these issues of not only is population growing and growing faster all the time, but different ethnic and regional groups are competing for control of countries and they're competing in part on the basis of if you become a democracy who gets the most votes whichever population group can be the largest now one last topic and i'll sit down because there's so many issues here i can keep going it's fun uh, but there's a whole book to read i urge you to do so um, what about the rich countries okay poor countries are growing very fast we want to get involved in their growth but what about the u.s and china uh, Tim Geithner and Hillary Clinton are going to China to talk about that relation. People talk about it as the most important relationship in the world. And there are projections that China's going to eat our lunch and become the next great superpower. And my son is learning Chinese, not a bad thing to do. But don't believe that China is going to overtake the United States and become a great hegemonic power. It's not going to happen. It's not in the cards. And the reason I say this is because fertility has dropped so fast in China that it has exhausted its period of favorable demography for growth. Now China under Mao followed a pronatalist policy. Mao Zedong felt the more Chinese the better, it will make us a stronger nation. Every mouth comes into the world with two hands attached and so every person has the capability to feed themselves. Well the Chinese leaders did some quick, you know, back of the envelope, how much land do we have? If we want food security, we want to grow all the food we need to uh, support our population, how large a population can we handle? And it came out a lot less than the three billion they were on target to hit if there was no decline in fertility. So they enacted a rather drastic one-child policy, 1980. One of the ironies is that it was probably totally unnecessary because Fertility has dropped almost as quickly in India once India got on a similar high urbanization, fast economic growth track, similar to the one that China hit in 1980. Because we find that as moms work longer and harder and as they move to cities where uh, space is scarce, if they have the opportunity to reduce their fertility, they do. In fact, if you got rid of the one-child policy today, it would probably have no effect on China because voluntary fertility in similar situations, similar cultures, in uh, Taiwan, for example, fertility is way low. But the result, nonetheless, of this sudden decline in fertility in China is that, hey, from 1980 to 2010, all those kids that were born in the 60s and 70s went to school, got degrees, entered the workforce, made China a manufacturing superpower. But that's over now. Now that 1980 kind of was the time that they started reducing uh, fertility, the workforce in China is going to peak in the next three or four years and then start declining after about 2020. It'll stagnate for a while. There's still a lot of young women in China that are liable to have kids. But after 2050, China's population starts to decline very quickly. In fact, the projection is China will lose 450 million people. That's more than the entire population of the United States today, between 2050 and 2100. So that's a big damper on growth. 
In fact, if you look at the motors that moved China forward in the last 30 years, part of it was rapid growth of the labor force. That's gone. A second element was a rapid urbanization because people become far more productive economically when they move from the countryside to the city and go into service and manufacturing instead of agriculture. But China has already moved from being about 20% urban to 55% urban. That is, it almost tripled the urban population. It can't triple once you're already at 55%. So urbanization is also slowing down. It's continuing, but it's slowing down. And the third motor was taking an illiterate, uneducated peasantry and giving them universal education. And that's done. That's kind of a one-off. So the big motors for China's growth have kind of been exhausted. The next thing China needs to do is become a creative, idea-driven, innovative society, which it simply cannot do with an authoritarian government. Now we have this illusion that you can hothouse science. The Russians have this uh, Skolkovo park they're building to be their Silicon Valley. But the reality is, if you look at what's you know, the real breakthroughs, the physicists who came up with lasers did not think they were doing this to create iTunes. But the whole laser to CD player to digital music revolution went down that route. Similarly, the physicists who developed nuclear magnetic resonance didn't think they were doing it to make diagnostic medical machinery. It's these crossovers, these connections that you get with free flow of information ideas that lead to this kind of innovation-driven economic growth. That is still going to be delayed in China. So they're losing their demographic drivers of growth without creating the institutional freedoms to get the new stage. What I do think will happen is China's going to remain a big economy. But there are other countries where the labor force is still growing very quickly. I call them the Timbi countries. A little article I did in foreign policy uh, last fall. Turkey. I mentioned already 18 million students in school. They're investing heavily in education, wiring all the classrooms in the country. India. Although India has problems of great inequality and uneven infrastructure. Mexico, if they can get their drug problem under control, they're not a third world country anymore. They're a thriving industrial country with big natural resources and a young population. Indonesia, kind of a sleeping giant that most people uh, don't know about. And of course, Brazil. So Turkey, India, Mexico, Brazil, Indonesia, all of these countries, they're in the top 10 large, top 20 largest economies in the world, but what separates them from Russia or China or North America or East Asia is they all have labor forces that are still young enough to grow for the next 20 years and that have great capacities to increase their productivity through human capital and, perhaps most importantly, they've got their fertility under control and they have democratic institutions that are providing a good framework for law and order and productivity increases. They're not quite like those super rapidly growing countries of Sub-Saharan Africa or uh, South Asia that still need to get things under control. Now, the picture I'm giving you is a mixed bag, to be sure. On the one hand, there's generational conflict and fiscal disaster looming in the rich countries. There's enormous overpopulation and a risk of unused human capital, the kind of youth bulge that helped produce the revolutions across the Middle East and North Africa. That youth bulge is equally welling up across all of Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Central, Northern parts of South America. They can be a great force for peace and productivity, but they can also be a risk of disorder if their ambitions are met with resistance. 
But there's also potential for a world in which the complementary skills, the capital, the resources, the management, the training, uh, the great human capital accumulated in the rich countries comes together with the great potential, the youth surge, the opportunities for development in the emerging markets in the developing world. So there is room for a world in which if we network properly, if we understand the differences and the complementarities, we can make progress. I don't think we're going to make progress if we close our borders to immigration, try and cure our ills with a simple austerity policy, not recognizing how rapidly the very population structure of our societies is changing, and if we don't view kind of the world as a whole in systemic fashion. But political democracy, I think, leads you to see how all these things can be connected and how there are opportunities to move either forward or back. In a sense, the world is in a wonderful place, but in a very challenging one. We are going to see in the next 20 years, for the first time in the history of humanity, a human population that is more than 50% urban. We just passed that threshold in 2010. We're going to see a world in which we have societies more aged than any we have ever seen, and that's going to be a huge challenge but because the entire world will eventually catch up and start aging as well, solving those problems now will be a great boon for developing countries in the future as well. But we're seeing relationships like we've never seen before, and these are going to be challenges that we have to solve. It's always risky, but uh, okay. Um, okay, thank you very much. I know PowerPoint, uh, absolute PowerPoint corrupts absolutely, but I'm still going to lean on it for this talk. Um, hopefully, to show you, hopefully, it'll enhance my talk. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today are uh, perhaps a number of the obstacles between uh, Jack's vision and what may be the reality, uh, and that is nationalism, ethnic conflict, religion. I'm an LSE alumni, by the way, and it's good to be here. I studied uh, nationalism and ethnic conflict. So what I'm going to try and do is talk about nationalism, ethnicity, and religion, and how population change is going to inform those concepts, because I think this is going to be a very important aspect. And it's covered, uh, there are quite a few chapters in the book that look at this question of differential growth rates of different ethnic groups within countries or different religious groups. Um, why now? Why is political demography important now? This is a case we make in the book, and I think you can see it if you look at uh, the number of times population is cited in the news or in policy reports just in the past 10 years, suggests there's an upsurge in interest in political demography, that is, the politics of population change. Now, really, we're in this phase. We're almost right in the middle of this tremendous growth in human population. This is the population of the globe. You've probably seen graphs like this where it's more or less flat and then there's this spike that occurs. In this case, between 1950 and 2050, and we're somewhere over here. Uh, so we're right in the middle of this. But I think one of the points that Jack uh, made is that it's not so much about global population and global resources. It's about what's going on in terms of unevenness in different parts of the world. And that's really what my talk's going to be about, because that unevenness is really where the politics and the political demography comes in. 
unevenness between nation states, between ethnic groups within nation states, between religions. Uh, and this is both a domestic and an international phenomenon. If you think about religion, clearly Islam can be a global thing, or Islam can be an issue for Great Britain within the nation state. Similarly with ethnicity, uh, ethnicity is more of a domestic issue, but if you expand it to include issues of race, civilization, that takes you qu very quickly beyond the borders of the nation state. The point about this is that this rise occurs at different times in different countries. So this demographic transition from a situation of high death rates and high birth rates, the nasty, brutish, and short phase of human existence, followed by the population boom as birth rates exceed death rates, and then the next level of stability with low birth rates and low death rates. That's the, the spike phase. But that occurred clearly much earlier in the West, in particular, beginning in the late 18th century, uh, whereas in much of the current developing world, that only takes place in the 20th, often from the mid-20th century. Now, here's a slide from uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland. And this is uh, Terence O'Neill, leader of the Unionist Party. That's the Protestant party which dominated Northern Ireland uh, between 1922, when Northern Ireland was formed, and 1972. And in 1969, after he was forced out by uh, the mass of the Unionist Party, basically the hardline, not just the hardliners, but the mass of the Unionists forced him out because he was attempting to reform uh, allocation of local government and so on. And he responds, as he resigns in 1969, which is the start of the Northern Ireland Troubles, the Civil War, he says, the basic fear of Protestants in Northern Ireland is that they will be outbred by the Roman Catholics. It's as simple as that. And what's he's, what he's getting at here, I think, which is quite interesting, is if we look at this unevenness of demographic transition, the first big difference that we see in the West is the uneven transition between Catholics and Protestants. And that actually underlies the growth of the Catholic population in places like the United States, Scotland, uh, Britain, Northern Ireland, you have an unevenness. That is, the Protestant population goes through the demographic transition first, their birth rates come down first, therefore the Catholic share of the population increases. Nationalism really is about an overlay of culture and politics, a congruence between ethnicity and territory. So if your concept of politics is the congruence of ethnicity, territory, and politics, then anything that upsets that balance, anything that might lead to the growth of a minority, let's say, is going to, has the potential to lead to conflict, particularly, as Jack mentioned, democracy. Uh, democracy introduces the idea that numbers matter. So in Saddam's Iraq, numbers actually didn't matter as much as they do today because you could be the Sunni minority, you could be the Takriti minority, you could rule as long as you controlled the military. In a democracy, you have to win the election, you need the numbers, especially if people vote along ethnic lines. So that amplifies the importance of uh, demography and Monica Toft in this uh, book mentions something about that. So first we have this unevenness between Catholic and Protestant which uh, if you know your American history or your, your British history, you, you'll know that there was a strong Protestant response, uh, Protestant nationalism manifested in the U.S. in the form of movements such as the American Party, otherwise known as the Know Nothing Movement, uh, also the Ku Klux Klan, which was largely an anti-Catholic movement in the early 20th century. And in Britain, um, in, in Scotland, for example, anti-Catholicism as well was part of what was going on was this increase in the Catholic share of the population. Why? Because immigration is linked to 
a younger age population. Younger populations also provide more immigrants. Uh, so ca Catholic populations younger, providing more immigrants, also having higher fertility, younger age structure, all the ingredients of growth. So this was really the first major uh, difference. But what's interesting today, of course, is that the differences between, initially we thought it was the, we the West, that is North America, Europe, versus the rest. Increasingly now we realize it's the developed world, East Asia plus the West, vis-a-vis -vis sort of South Asia, Africa, so on, uh, Latin America. And what's interesting is to see the demographic transition, first of a, of a European country like Denmark. This is a plot of surviving offspring, number of children that survive per woman. Uh, and this is the number of years since the demographic transition. The red line is Denmark. And you can see that the red, the Danish number of surviving offspring rises above this replacement level of two with, its, with the onset of its demographic transition in the early 19th century and remains above that level. So you're getting population growth for a long period and then now below replacement. However, in Guatemala, to use a country that had a similar population, similar income, similar population density to Denmark when Denmark started its transition, the Guatemalan transition in the 20th century led to a huge spike up to five surviving offspring per woman. Why? Well, simply because medical technology, sanitation, so much better in the 20th century than it was in the 19th and early 20th century. So you have the result of this being, uh, by the end of the demographic tr transition in Denmark, an increase of five times the population, whereas in Guatemala, anywhere from eight to 24, it could be as high as 24 times the population by the time Guatemala finishes its demographic transition. Uh, in other words, the intensity of the population explosion in the developing world today is much more, uh, much higher than was the case in Europe during its population expansion phase. I also think the intensity of the implosion will be faster, by the way, but that's a topic for another, another day. So it's this, instead of the distinction, say, between Catholic-Protestant, it's the distinction between developing and developed parts of the world, which has ethnic religious implications. Uh, and these will be played out largely within nation states, just as the Catholic-Protestant difference in terms of its transition was played out in places like Northern Ireland or the United States. Similarly, this difference uh, is being played out in national spheres. Here is a, a graph of the state of California's population, one of the more dramatic graphs, which shows that between 1970 and today, the proportion of California's population that is white, non-Hispanic, declines from 80% to, I think it's now around 45%, and it's going to continue to decline. Now, this is, of course, stylized. There's going to be a certain amount of intermarriage, significant amount of intermarriage between these groups. But it just shows you that what's happening is Mexico supplies the immigrants is a younger population, and so you get ethnic change. And that has political ramifications, as we've seen uh, most recently in Arizona in the American elections, but also, uh, as we'll see in a minute, in Europe as well. So yes, ideally it's the case that the developed world should be integrating with the developing world. As Jack said, the developed world aging, uh, it, it needs to pay, deal with its pension issues, um, its uh, a higher dependency ratio, and so on. So ideally these two parts of the world should get together, but the barrier between that is this idea of nationalism. That is that the nation should be congruent with the territory and politics. So this question of ethnicity and ethnic change, I think, we already see it with the rise of the far right in Europe, uh, the rise of immigration as an issue 
uh, in the United States. I mean, of course, it's been an issue in the United States in the past, but still, demographic changes playing into ethnic and nationalist politics. Uh, this is a projection that uh, David Coleman, who's got a chapter in our, in our book, uh, he's talking about the United Kingdom. And if we just look at fertility rates, age structures, immigration, there's no question, for example, that the proportion of white British in the UK population is only going to go one way. That's a pretty safe prediction. Uh, just, but even if there was a cutoff in immigration, you'd still get a lot of this shift. And that shift is going to raise big political questions about what it means to be English, British, so on. Uh, what is the place of, how, how should the, a white British person see themselves within the context of an ethnically changing uh, United Kingdom? So these are questions, political questions, that are thrown up by uh, some of the demographic trends we've identified. So it's that unevenness in that demographic transition that's important. Now, one of the discourses that's come up partly in response to these quite astounding changes, because we recall that what Jack said, basically, uh, the year 1900, there were two and a half Europeans for every African. The year 2050, four Africans for every European. There is no question that this will be a source region of immigrants uh, for the aging, declining parts of the world. So you're going to get the ethnic change. Sometimes that's compounded with fears over religious change, and that's very much the Eurabia discourse, which, which up until a, a year or two ago was loomed very, very large in the newspapers. Um, and what you can see on this graph is if we actually, this is Austria, and if you assumed current fertility levels amongst Muslims in Austria, the age structure of Muslims and the immigration rates of Muslims, yes, by the end of the century, Muslims would be a majority of Austria's population. However, uh, we know that in fact, the Muslim fertility rates have come down dramatically both within Europe and outside Europe. And so, in fact, it's much more likely that we'll see a topping out at around 20%. And that doesn't include the effects of secularization and assimilation, which may very well lead that number to be much lower. But still, the, there's no question that the amplitude of these kinds of issues has increased uh, in recent decades simply because of those demographic shifts. 97% of the world's population <laughs> growth is taking place in the developing world. So almost all of the population growth then in the developing world. So that will be the source of immigrants to the developed world. Uh, I've talked a lot about ethnic changes. I've talked a little bit about religious changes. One thing that's interesting is that on the back of ethnic changes comes religious change. Part of the reason for this, and I, I talk about this in my book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, uh, is because that 97% population growth in the developing world is taking place in very religious parts of the world where 95% or so of the population uh, are adherents of religion. The aging parts of the world, East Asia and the West, are the most secular parts of the world. In other words, the very, there's a very strong chance you're going to get religious immigrants coming into secular context, which also has implications uh, when it comes to religion and politics, which I'll talk about in a minute. I've said something then about these uneven transitions between different parts of the world, Protestant Catholic, Muslim Christian, developed developing, that's going to characterize this takeoff period of population explosion. What about the period we're heading into, that of the plateauing and ultimate stability or even decline of population in the world? I think this raises quite interesting questions, with, specifically with regard to religion. And I talked about this in my book of a couple of years ago, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? I don't know how many of you follow Israeli politics, but if you have, uh, the temperature, the culture wars in Israel has been heating up 
over issues such as whether women's faces can be shown on ads, on billboards in uh, Jerusalem and other parts of Israel. These ads have been defaced by ultra-Orthodox Jewish activists who are upset at the portrayal of women's faces on ads. You can see a sort of a, I don't know, what, uh, the, what they're trying to connote here is this idea that women should be dressed uh, modestly. And in fact, there was a riot that took place in, uh, around New Year's over the issue of, is, and a secular Israeli schoolgirl school not dressed what they consider to be modestly, which is sort of long sleeves and, and so on. Uh, increasingly, the ultra-Orthodox are challenging the secular basis of the Israeli state. And they're able to do so largely because they have three times the fertility of the majority Jewish population in Israel. Uh, they now make up a third of the first grade class in the public sector. Um, and they're increasingly assertive. They feel their power, which has grown, because Israel is a democracy, it has grown astoundingly. Not only in Israel, also in the Jewish diaspora. This is a, a headline from the Jewish Tribune, the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish paper here in Britain. We are heading for a majority by 2050. This is based upon uh, demographic projections that the ultra-Orthodox are going to be the majority of Jews in the United States and Britain by 2050, which is a radical, absolutely radical shift. Uh, what's interesting about this is that you have a group, unlike the Catholics and the Protestants, Catholic birth rates, they were simply late in catching up to the Protestants in that demographic transition. Ultimately, Catholic birth rates converge with those of the Protestants. Ultimately, Muslim birth rates are converging with the Christian, and so on. But that, so that's simply a lag issue. But when we talk about the ultra-Orthodox, their birth rates are not converging. They have, in the DNA of the fundamentalist religious groups, is a resistance to demographic transition. So their birth rates have actually gone up and stayed at around 7.5, while that of the rest uh, of Israel has gone down. And this is a characteristic of a number of fundamentalist groups which will allow them to actually greatly increase their share of the population at a time when the world's population begins to decline. And we just see this comparing two uh, Jewish populations, the ultra-Orthodox dominated population of Salford in, in Manchester, very young, almost Ethiopian style age structure versus that of a mainstream Jewish population, in, case, in this case Leeds, which is very much a mature age structure. Um, a statistic, 75% of births to observant Jews in the UK uh, are ultra-Orthodox, but they only make up 17% of the population. So that gives you a sense of the potential for rapid growth. And there are other examples of this, such as the Amish 5,000 and 1,900, uh, by some counts almost a quarter of a million today. So these, this kind of a religious group that retains its membership, grows internally through high birth rates, is poised to become more important. Uh, the the uh, Mormons, uh, by the way, are a kind of intermediate group. Their fertility is not quite as radical as the, the ultra-Orthodox or the Amish, but it is significantly higher than the American average, which is going to make uh, a difference. Uh, and there's even a group in the U.S. called Quiverful who, seeing the decline of, of fertility in the mainstream U.S. population, have talked about a 200-year plan for domination. Uh, I kid you not. <laughs> they don't believe in fa family planning. They don't believe in birth control. And they say, well, look, we're, we're di uh, divinely ordained to take over through high fertility. Uh, now, this is the last slide, I promise you. Um, it's not the case. Of course, Quiverful is a small movement of neo-fundamentalist Protestants. But if you actually look at the... St and, and Ron Lestaga, uh, 
Hastaga and Neider, quite well-known demographers, just took a look at the white total fertility rate of Americans in 2002 and the percent that voted for George Bush's Republican Party in 2004. And if you plot this, there's a 78.78 correlation. So you have the Mormon states, Utah, Idaho, which is a third Mormon roughly, over here with high fertility and high support for the Republicans. Then you've got the white evangelicals, Southern Baptists, others down here, the southeastern United States states here, um, Midwest, Northeast, and then at the bottom here you have the liberal New England states like Vermont with very low fertility and very low support for George Bush. It's, it's not entirely an accidental correlation here. It runs through religiosity, family values, uh, in the sense that you have groups that are more evangelical and religious who have higher fertility uh, and are also voting for more conservative political parties. And part of what's going on here, of course, is that seculars, it's not just that fundamentalists are having a lot of kids. In fact, fundamentalists are having fewer children in most cases than they used to. But it's the fact that the seculars are having so much fewer children. And in fact, in every, in every country in the world, religiosity next to education, the strongest predictor of a woman's fertility. So I leave you with that grim thought, and I'll turn it over to Alex. if you did Hispanics, <laughs> yeah, the, the graph would run the other way, right? It's, it's because it's a non-Hispanic white. Right, right. Um, so, uh, I'm John Parker. I work for The Economist magazine. And um, I won't go on so much, but I wanted just to try to talk a little bit about what I see as the kind of the development of demography in general over... Uh, several decades, really, and tried to locate this very good book uh, um, in that. Um, and I'm going to compare a little bit what I see as kind of the, the trends and the concerns of demographers now with what they used to be. Um, Eric said that there's been a, you know, if you, if you track the number of um, mentions of demography, it's, it's gone up over the last 10 years, I'm sure that's true, but but actually, my impression is that the concerns are a little bit more recent. Um, and essentially, demographies become a matter of more urgent public concern, uh, basically because of concerns about the environment uh, and the, the food price spike. You know, the food price spike has made us think, oh my god, how are we going to feed 9 billion people in 2050? That kind of automatically brings the, the, the numbers of people in on, on the on one side of the scale, and kind of in, environmental worries put pressure on all sorts of resources. And so, for me, you know, demography has become a more urgent public issue relatively recently. You know, journalists like to make these kind of grand, eloquent statements. The, the editor of the magazine I work for wrote a book called "God Is Back." I'm surprised he went away, I guess. But um, uh, in a similar strain, I'd say demography's back. Um, but I think that it's back in a very different form. So its heyday, as I, I see it, um, when 
Paul Ehrlich wrote what was a massive, massive bestseller in 1968. It was the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, so Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, basically said we're all, gonna, we're all doomed because there are way too many people. And the concern at that time um, was that was a classic Malthusian concern. Um, it was all about high fertility and how we have to reduce it, otherwise we're all going to die. Um, and so it was, all, it was about high fertility rates and total population size. Now, of course, that strain kind of exists a bit. It hasn't completely gone away. But I, I think that the, there's sort of like a new demographic set of concerns which is much more to do, much less to do with total population size and simply, you know, concerns about high fertility and much more about ageing, the, the sort of cohort composition, the relationship of, you know, adult, uh, adult working population to the retired population to, you know, uh, the young population. Um, so we're concerned about dependency ratios and sort of the demographic dividend. And so, and th this book is kind of part of that. Um, you know, it, it breaks down that sort of big number, you know, 7 billion into, well, you know, let's look at the, the, the 20 to 24-year-old cohort and see what happens. I, I just, sorry, just to go off on a total tangent here, you mentioned... <laughs> You mentioned uh, China uh, and it's the, the worries about Chinese demography. There's a fantastic number here, um, which I'm now actually going to forget exactly the, the dates. But um, if, you, if you look at uh, the, 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 that cohort of 20 to 24-year-olds, people just joining the workforce in America and China, between now and about 2030, in America it's basically flat. Um, so a reasonably stable pattern. In China, the number more than halves between now and 2030. 2030 is not that far away, but the total numbers fall from orders of magnitude. It's like 120 million people now to 60 million people in that age group. And that really shows you, I think, well, you're right. I mean, I think China's demography is like its Achilles heel. And... Um, but it's that, I, I give that as an example both to show Jack, you know, f to develop Jack's point, but, but also to say these are the kinds of things we're interested in now more. So I think demography's emerged as a sort of a less kind of dramatic and less urgent set of concerns than it used to be. You know, so I think there's a sense, rightly or wrongly, that that big... Um, the big, the big looming problem of, you know, too many people has not been solved, that's too, that's too much to say, but, you know, the big fall in fertility rates around the world, world everywhere but in parts of Africa, you know, has gone a long way to reducing the, 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 um, the, the sort of sense of crisis. Uh, in 1976, the Club of Rome, I think, um, uh, wrote... Uh, report saying we're all doomed um, and it used this image of uh, the lily 
had on a pool which doubled every day, doubled in size every day. And it said, you know, it's now occupied, we, we're at the stage where the lily pad now occupies half the pool. So like tomorrow, it's going to double in size and just cover the whole pool and the pool will die. There was that sense of tremendous urgency. I don't think, I think that's nothing like as sharp as it was, which is fine, I, mean, I think it's correct. Um, I think in, in, in the 60s there was this you know, over, overarching concern with high fertility rates. I think now we see a much more sort of disparate pattern. Um, whether it's literally more disparate than it was in the 60s, I don't know, but, but um, uh, Niger has a fertility rate of something like 5 or 6. Shanghai has a fertility rate of 0.6. So that's an, an i.e. there's like half a child per, per, per mother. Um, that's a very, very large discrepancy. Uh, and, you know, I'm, this is Shanghai, right? I mean, it's, it's the major city of a middle-income country. Shanghai itself is rich, but um, it's a middle-income country. I'm not, not taking, you know, the most extreme case in, in, in Europe, you know, Monaco or something. Um, so I think, you know, that the demographic patterns are more fragmented now, and I think there's sort of a more of a kind of multiplicity of actors involved in, in talking about demography now. Um, one of the reasons I think it went off the boil a little bit um, was a change that took place in a conference in Cairo. There, so there were a series of big conferences during the 70s and 80s uh, about, you know, what do we do about the world population? And it, in a sense, it culminated in one in 1994 in Cairo, um, at which people basically said, you know, there's way too much talk about sort of top-down um, fertility planning, population planning, you know, the, the, the nightmare here was the one-child policy in which, you know, human rights were sort of systematically abused. And the Cairo conference shifted the, the focus away from that towards, you know, kind of uh, women's autonomy, um, uh, you know, sort of desired fertility, that kind of thing. And, um, I mean, I think Strangely enough, that sort of took some of the wind out of the sails of, of those who were, you know, wanting the, these big top-down policies. And, and it slightly took, um, I think it, it, it actually took that old-style demography off the public agenda. Quite, and also in my view, quite rightly, but anyway, I think it, it observably did do that. So we now have sort of a multiplicity of actors. You know, you have governments, you have NGOs... Um, you have academics, you have various, you know, e every country has sort of a, a kind of a series of voices talking about uh, different concerns with demography. And I think it's, I think that sort of made the, uh, it, it, it's, it's made it kind of more of a babble, you know. Um, I think the other thing that's changed, the other difference is that the old arguments about demography were pretty straightforwardly kind of optimist versus pessimists. You know, this was exemplified by a, a bet um, between the author of The Population Bomb and uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich and uh, Julian Simon. Do you know, do you know that, does everyone know this bet? You know? Okay, so the economist uh, told Simon to 
take any five commodities, and they took a bet that the price of those commodities would be higher or lower um, in 20, 20 years' time, I think it was. And so, you know, the implication of the population bomb was that because of the pressure of population on resources, the prices of all these commodities should go through the roof, and uh, the economists argued, no, 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 you know, the sort of technology would come along and improve everything and prices would fall. And the economist was right, actually. They, he won the bet. Um, uh, if, he took, if he took the bet now, by the way, um, the population guy would have won. Um, uh, but there was that, that, that was the debate, as it were. It was between the kind of the, optimi- the, the, the sort of economic optimists and the population pessimists. Now I think it's slightly more complicated. I mean, I think that there's actually a debate between sort of two schools of pessimists. There's, there's the sort of the explosionists who are still worried about the explosive population growth in Africa. And they're one set of pessimists. And, but who's more important, them or the implosionists, you know, those who are arguing that the population is imploding in Europe. And that they're, we've now got sort of two sets of pessimists arguing with each other. Um, I'll just end uh, with, and, and so anyway, so my, th- those are various reasons why, as I see it, you know, population, population demo- demography has come back in a slightly, slightly different form from what it used to be. And I'll just end with kind of one issue which strikes me as being a big issue for demography and one that I must admit I find very difficult to um, make up my mind about. And that's this question about are we, con- are we converging or diverging? We, uh, is the world converging towards a f- kind of fertility rate of around 2.1, um, which the UN projections all assume, by the way, and they tend to say, you know, that's what's globalization, it tends to be driving um, all countries down towards this sort of magic number of 2.1. And, I mean, observably, a lot of countries have seen their fertility rates fall from, you know, six or seven towards, or two, 2.1. Or are we seeing a sort of a divergence? Um, and while I think it's true that the big pattern has been towards 2.1, I, when I look at, at least for the future, I, I think I see diverging patterns... Um, again, not based on this. This is based on the sort of you know the composition of the demographic numbers, um, and the the sort of th- to you know to oversimplify a lot. The three patterns are countries which are barely aging: Africa, um, India, and the Middle East and North Africa. You know these are countries with. A median age, median age is the age where half the population is younger, half older, and they're sort of they, they rise a little bit from you know mid twenties to high twenties over the next sort of thirty years or so, um, and where you also find um, th- they're basically reaping pretty big dem- demographic dividend because. The fertility rate's fallen. You get relatively few uh, younger people because of that. Relatively few older people because, as it were, they all died earlier. And so you get this big bulge of, of people uh, of working age who kind of move through society working hard. And, um, you know, 
uh, uh, giving the potential to these countries to grow fast economically. So then you get at the other extreme countries which are aging very rapidly um, Japan, China, and much of, though not all, of Europe. Um, China's average, uh, median age, sorry, um, in 1980 when the one-child policy began was 22. That's sort of characteristic of a young developing country. It's now 35, and by 2030 it will be something like 49, which is what Japan's also heading to. We've never seen numbers like this. Never, ever, ever has a country had a median age of around 50. I mean, you know, absolutely astonishing. Half the population's over 50. Um, and then in the middle, um, there's the US, Latin America, a few other countries, which are aging only a bit, which have sort of lost their demographic dividend, but don't have this enormous hit coming from this ballooning uh, aging population, where the dependency ratio is rising, but nothing like as fast. Um, so, um, I, as I said, I think that those are the kind of interesting questions, those sort of questions about the composition of demography. Demography bears on the big sort of, not, you know, the nine billion question, how do we feed nine billion people, you know, what happens to the environment? Those are all kind of incredibly important issues. But for me, they're not primarily demographic ones. I mean, how do we feed nine billion? The answer to that question is not to stop quite so many people living. It's, you know, to try to make crops more drought tolerant, to, you know, in increase the efficiency with which we use the resources, uh, and so on. Um, those are kind of agricultural, technology, trade questions. Um, and so this book looks at, you know, the sort of the composition, questions of composition, and in my view bears, you know, gives very interesting answers to many of these questions. So thank you very much. Thank you. Do you, uh, you can stay up there if you want. Um, I'll uh, grab the chair. Uh, we have, we have a, good 15, <laughs> the, the, uh, a good 15 minutes of questions. I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll collect questions and then we can address uh, the individual speakers. For those who um, want to stick around afterwards, like I said, the book is on sale. I forgot to actually mention that actually the editors are, two of the three editors are here, of course. Jack and, and Eric are, along with Monica Toft, um, editing the volume and we'll have it on sale afterwards. It's okay. really good. I recommend it. Um, <laughs> An honest opinion. <laughs> yes. Questions? Start over here. Yes. Please speak up. Um, I came in late, but I haven't heard any reference to, to women's rights and, and the, the women's education, or some, some minor reference to education that, the, that is a big factor, but, but not explored. And it's so clear that around the world that there's a, such a correlation between lack of women's rights and high birth rate. Yeah, yeah. So I've listened to three men talking about this, but why is this just so pushed out? I mean, you talked about the fact that in the Cairo Population Conference that the the, uh, the debate shifted because it went nicely towards women's autonomy, but still the case, and you can throw the religious element in here quite strongly, that wherever women don't have rights and don't have education, there's high birth rate. So why don't we put all our concentration 
all our development aid, all, all our uh, overseas focus on addressing those issues. Another question? Yes. Um, I wanted Jack to follow up when he asked the Gates Foundation the question of, um, aside from providing healthcare, what else are you going to do to ensure uh, an above level sustainable lifestyle? What was their answer? <laughs> Other questions? Over here. Yeah, uh, but aside from absolute economic growth and old age costs, what about other considerations like per capita living standards and or environmental constraints and problems? Based on those ideas, is not population stability and or even moderate population decline favorable? Any others in this point? Yes. As time goes on, technology will mean that there'll be less labor intensive manufacturing. So if we do reduce population, Manufacturers will slip into that that kind of structure whereby we left need to work in factories or even farms. Okay, so let's start with four questions and uh, should we go in order? Then just stand up or the Gates Foundation said that's not our issue. <laughs> Although I think they're going to make it their issue. I actually had a conference with uh, a group of people who were collecting information for the Gates Foundation and I pointed out they are working too much in kind of a top-down. What do donors and national governments need to do? And I said, you need to focus more on what local communities can do because if you don't have programs where local communities take ownership, they don't work very well. Uh, this also bears into the question of women's rights. Uh, you may not have been here when I said that in China there was no need for a coercive one-child policy because as families grow more urban and as women participate more in the workforce and get more educated, they voluntarily tend to reduce their fertility. Now, you're absolutely right. The single best predictor of declining fertility is a greater role for women with regard to autonomy, education, and workplace achievement. I didn't put a lot of emphasis on that because in some sense, that's known and taken for granted. What I think is overlooked is that the places where you have very high fertility today are not just places where women lack rights, it's where the state doesn't provide a secure framework and therefore a tribal patriarchal outlook remains entrenched because people can't rely on the government to provide security or retirement or education. They have to do everything within a local clan or family structure and those structures tend to be very patrimonial, very patriarchal, uh, very top-down. And so my, my response to your question is, you're absolutely right, but just trying to empower women doesn't work if you have a broader uh, government system that doesn't provide a framework where women are able to act and doesn't provide the basic security that they need. I think I'll stop there. Let Eric take the other questions. Right. I don't know that the other, the other questions were so much for me. I mean, I was going to make a comment on the women's question as well. Uh, and just to say that Monica Toft, who's our third uh, co-editor, has a chapter in the book entitled Wombfare, which I think nicely addresses this question of how, when you have a patriarchal system, the women, even though, if, even though women would like to lower their fertility if they were given the choice, if you have a sort of male-dominated uh, political system that enforces high fertility, does not allow women the choice of contraception, for example, then you are going to get um, high fertility. So I think you've got to look at both uh, both ends of it. Both both the men and the women are important in terms of family formation. But of course, yes, absolutely, empowering women is, is, is critical. One thing I would also add, though, is in, in addition to women's education, religiosity is an absolutely fundamental predictor of, of family size. So I think 
alongside women's education, religiosity. But of course, there's a relationship with all of those. And you're absolutely right. In the U.S., religiosity is more important than women's education and fertility. Right. And that's true of a lot of countries, actually, in the world. Do you want to tackle the question? There's two questions about population decline. Yeah. Well, I was just going. To, yeah, I was just thinking about the the. The, the issue of, you know, isn't a lower or a declining population, surely that's good for the environment. I mean, at some level, of course, this is, this is right. I mean, our, you know, our existence on Earth is kind of damaging to the environment. Um, but I think I'd go back, I mean, I think my main reply to that question would be to sort of stress this notion that you need to kind of decompose um, the, the, the kind of environmental damage that we do uh, and look at who's doing the real damage. Um, I, I, the, I, or, the orders of magnitude, I think, are right. What I'm about to say, the details are probably wrong. I think um, the average American produces something of the order of like 15 tons of carbon equivalent every year. And the average sub-Saharan Africa, and it's below one ton. For most countries, it's way below one ton. So the difference is, you know, at a minimum, like Americans are producing 20 times as much. It's probably actually many more than that. So, so you know, 20 more Africans equals one more American, right? You know, so if you, if you just broadly say, well, we should have fewer people, I think it's actually more helpful to say, well, who are we talking about? You know, and, you know, reducing... The numbers, it's, the, the real issue, I think, is not so much about total numbers. It's sort of about patterns of consumption. And we'd be much better off focusing on how we reduce those patterns of consumption rather than thinking about, you know, possible benefits of reducing numbers of people. That, that's, that's my sort of first cut at that issue. Let's collect another round of questions. Start here. Um, one of the things that concerned me was the unevenness and um, in particular your points about religiosity and I was just thinking about the environmental and economic consequences of a more divergent population and result of warfare and conflict and what you think about the future for the population and the, and the climate if you like in, in that sort of uh, future prospect. Any questions? Over here. I just wonder if um, maybe greater globalisation Yeah, uh, Jack, I wanted to get you to push a little deeper on the relationship between migration and demography. You alluded to it in your talk, talked about complementarity, um, but is it just a matter of, well, we have an aging society here, we have lots of extra people in Africa, let's bring them up here. It's not quite as simple as that. If you could comment on how migration, uh, what do you see as migration trends in 20 years? Why don't you come on? Over here? Yeah. You should. It's your book. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Go ahead. We talked about the demographic dividend, particularly in North Africa and India, and I'm interested to know at what point do we squander that dividend? At what point does that become unattainable? Take a stop. Any other last questions before we move on? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm curious to know what sort of impact this is going to have on the sort of concept of the nation state and how that's weakening a bit more in Europe. But right. Um, whether that was strengthened in Africa, especially the influence of China's states. These are all great questions, yeah. and um, 
I, I wish I had time to give each one an answer in depth it deserves. Again, we're thinking about dynamic systems. And with dynamic systems, we can control our destiny. Demography is not just going to dictate. Too many people, big problems, it's not that simple. Everything depends on what is the productivity of people and are they productive in a way that is highly resource and pollution intensive or not. If we're in a situation where everybody, when they replace their roof, can get solar on their roof because it's actually built into the roofing tiles rather than added on top, or if we can put solar paving on the roadways and have electric cars soak up the energy as they just drive across the road, then you, get, you don't worry about so many of these problems. On the other hand, if we hit some real energy barriers and we end up being addicted to fossil fuel and the population grows and multiplies its energy consumption, then you get into these headaches. We need to think about people as both creative and as consuming and get the balance right. That's why the question is, should we have fewer people? Isn't fewer people always better? Fewer people is not better if the ratio of young to old people gets so skewed that the very creativity and productivity of the young people is dampened by living in a society where an older generation controls the vote, controls the resources, and creates a negative attitude or conservative attitude uh, that limits what young people can do. It's also you know, not good if young people, um, even if there are fewer of them, don't have access to the tools to make themselves productive. So countries like Singapore and China went through a population boom, but they did so with a very deliberate awareness that they needed to invest in the education and allow foreign capital and get, get engaged in international trade. Now globalization is one of those things. Is globalization part of the answer? Absolutely, if it's productive. If globalization includes young people coming to rich countries, gaining work experience, gaining skills, taking them back, and building companies, as happened in India and China. I'd also like to think it would involve retirees and people looking for second careers moving from Europe or the United States to developing countries. In the US, I tell people that uh, Mexico and Central America are the new Arizona and Florida. We should be looking for <laughs> our older people to migrate to where labor is plentiful and medical care is cheaper, it'll save everybody a lot of money, but we're not yet geared to treat <laughs> Medicare that way. So yes, all kinds of circulation and moving goods, information, people around. My vision of a productive future is that we stop thinking about nations. You raised the question about nations. The territory of the future that matters is going to be the urban nodes of global networks. So it's going to be who is in control of the intellectual and financial capital that runs through London, San Francisco, uh, Tokyo, Washington. But the other half of that is the criminal networks that run through Karachi, Lagos, uh, Mumbai, and they're in competition with that. So in a sense, getting the networks right, making sure the sources of creativity, uh, financial capital, marketing, entrepreneurial skill, and the institutional framework for those things to come together and flourish, that's how you're going to get the productive growth. The downside is the potential for migration that is driven by climate refugees, uh, people leaving the countryside, coming to cities, but going into informal and ideological extreme organizations because they can't find conventional work. So you could get the criminal terrorist organizations 
dominating some cities as opposed to the you know, financially and uh, innovation creative networks. It's really very much up to how much concerned we are to treat the globe as a whole as territory that needs to be networked and structured and fought for in a positive way. Well, I'm going to have a sort of more negative view. Uh, in this <laughs> Just to address that whole, the two questions which fit nicely together on, on globalization and the nation state. I mean, my view, I mean, coming from a background in nationalism studies, is, is globalization is as likely to fan people's awareness of how they're different as it is to make them the same. And I think we've seen that uh, in, many, in many parts of the world. And I think my suspicion is the nation state's not going anywhere. Uh, the question for me is going to be how the ethnic change is managed. Uh, I think one response would be immigration, greater emphasis on immigration restriction. And the, the rise of the far right in Europe is, I think, interesting. It's an interesting one to watch. Since the mid-'80s, you've had a tripling of support in many countries. That might be a straw in the wind for something, the kind of politics we might expect in the future. Uh, however, I think one of the ways that this might be solved is through a re-engineering, if you like, of the nation state, a different concept of national identity that moves away from a focus just on ethnicity. Uh, so to the extent that nation states can become more assimilationist or develop more civic sense of national identity, then they will be able to absorb more of these population flows and you'll get the better integration. I'm less, um, I, I'm not sure that the nation state itself is going to be uh, giving way to networks, but I could be wrong. Um, Question, did you address the question on religiosity? Sorry, sorry, there was a... So what, what was well, it's about the environmental and economic impact of uh, these desperate religious groups and the conflict, the military conflict that results and what that right. does. Well, I think the, the, I think the, I'm, I think the history of environment and conflict is such that we haven't seen a huge amount of conflict over, for example, water resources. I'm, less, I'm more skeptical of the environment being an ingredient in conflict, but I do think the religiosity is going to play a role, particularly if you get fundamentalist groups getting control of state apparatus or being able to put pressure on governments to act um, according to their agenda. So I, I think it's more than... The is as high as you say exactly. it's going. I mean, it's, it's well, looking that it will end up... Well, in Israel, yeah, in Israel already, the, the ultra-Orthodox, because their population growth has spilled across the green line and have become a real obstacle, I think, to the sort of lands for the land for peace, the status of Jerusalem, all of that has become much more problematic because of their uh, population growth. So yes, absolutely. In, in, in a case like Israel, definitely. The country that will be importing the largest number of workers is China, not us. I mean, they'll be importing on a scale which we can barely imagine. I should yeah. mention that I attended a presentation by officials from the Russian Statistical Association, Rostat, and uh, I asked them about the fact that Russia's population is going to decline by a huge amount, several hundred thousand a year, given the high death rate of young, uh, young men in particular and the low birth rates. And this is not a problem. We're going to take care of our issues with immigration. And I said, but that could be a challenge because you know, your biggest pool of potential immigrants is from Central Asia. And they're Muslim. And if you have 300,000 Muslim immigrants a year, you know, for 10 years, you're going to add 3 or 4 million Muslims to the population. Is that going to be an issue? And I said, no, we've stopped asking people to put religion on their <laughs> internal passports now. There you go. So that's no longer an issue. It's, a, but, it's but, so simple. Yeah, I, I wish it was that simple. Um, the serious answer is, especially during times of economic scarcity, people become very tribal. They worry very much about who is ours, 
who is like us, who can we trust, what is ours, and they don't see the potential for cooperation. I tell people in Europe all the time, America's had a rough time with immigration, but we've managed it and we're better for managing all the troubles that arise. The important thing to remember is hold on to your values. Don't think that if you have a minority of 10 or 15 percent African or Islamist, they're going to overthrow the values of the other 85 percent of the population unless you cave in and give, give in to them. But people do get so panicked about the fear that they're going to lose their own lifestyle with this relatively small amount of migrants that they panic and they say, we've, we've got to stop this and that's leading these far-right parties to gain a lot of strength. I hope that people will reflect on what their society needs in the longer run and that is going to be the cooperation of the best people from all over. Uh, LSC is kind of dedicated to that. I know that they're very strong on that. But, you know, I tell people, are you going to be better off with, you know, the best doctors treating your family, the best scientists working on your um, new products, the best managers and idea people uh, on your side, or do you want those best people working for your competitors? And all you have to do is make sure you shut the doors and keep them out, because if 90% of the kids of the world are growing up outside your borders, and you say, we don't want that talent, we don't want that potential, someone else is going to grab it. It's not going to be in your interest. Okay, I think with that, then we'll end. And thank you all for coming, and thanks to the speakers.